0: welcome to moving forward with young voices happy you could join us today and happy to welcome back to the program eli gullett who is a young voices contributor and probably carries a few more a few more hats than that Uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself eli for the sake of people meeting you for the first time
1: Yes. Thank you for having me back on, Brian. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I am a recent graduate from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where I studied urban planning and public policy. And I'm currently the branch leader for American Conservation Coalition's Raleigh-Durham branch.
0: Well, I'm looking at an article that you penned for uh, sustainabilitytimes.com. And uh, I'll admit, I see headlines about California wildfires a lot. It seems like, it seems like every year. It's, it's like earth-shaking, you know, wildfires taking place in California, but uh, your headline is Better Housing Can Help Fight California's Devastating Wildfires. So let's, let's dive into that. First of all, let's talk a little bit about why does California have so many extremely devastating wildfires in the first place?
1: So the reason for our current situation in California in regards to wildfires is a range of factors. Some of them have to do with climate change. I address some of this in my article. Uh, Climate change simply makes the probability of these type of uh, really harmful event natural disasters more likely. Uh, It just increases the probability, but in terms of other factors that have led to this current wildfire crisis that California has been facing, include the history of uh, forest mismanagement by uh, uh, California's for, forest services and histories of being against uh, sort of controlled burns of their uh, wildfires. Another contributor, and this is one that I think addresses more about this is more about my article, is. Uh, California's land use, uh, which puts a lot of people more at risk for these wildfires, so that when they do happen, it has a more direct impact on the individual.
0: Yeah, I've heard the term urban sprawl before, and I guess I just kind of filled in my own associations for what that must mean. But you describe in, in your article what urban sprawl is and how this is a very this is a very real part of California. I mean, there are just so many people. This is this is what it's like for those who aren't familiar with the term. What what do you mean when you say urban sprawl?
1: Yes, urban sprawl refers to the way that American uh, metropolitan areas have slowly and gradually expanded further into the outer reaches. So instead of having these tightly and connected dense urban centers, we often have suburban and exurban communities. You might have heard the term exurban, which is sort of the outer ring from the suburbs. Um, and because of a range of policy decisions at both the federal and state levels, we have really incentivized this kind of development through things like single family home uh, exclusive zoning and car dependency through uh, really large investments into highway expansion and um, other sort of incentives and, subsidi- and subsidies for people who can live further out.
0: Okay, so more people getting further out you know into the the land actually you know puts them at more risk obviously from from the uh, urban centers but something you pointed out in your article is okay the cars that they drive particularly those that uh, that are you know spewing carbon even if though even if people were to all switch to electric cars overnight would it really have that much impact
1: yeah, so definitely in the short term, that's not going to have the kinds of uh, impacts that we're going to need for to actually solve our current uh, climate change problems and California's wildfire problems. The big problem is we're currently still running our battery uh, powering systems through fossil fuels. So the electric car is definitely a step in the right direction, but it isn't necessarily going to solve the problem. Additionally, even when you even if we were to transition everyone over to an electric car in California, for example, it would not change the sort of carbon emissions that come from simply living so much further away from, say, your job or your kids go to school, all these sort of day to day activities we do every day. Um, this is going to be because of the sort of carbon emissions that come from basically when cars hit asphalt when they're driving, which is a small thing, but also produces air pollution. Uh, it's not as bad as it is with fuel um, powered cars. But it's still uh, a concern and then also that kind of development that we're going to need if we're going to continue on this infrastructure path you know we're still going to have to fuel uh spend more money on expanding highways and expanding roads further into the outer reaches so
0: okay uh and and talk to me a little bit about uh what are some of the downfalls or are the the drawbacks rather of of trying to house people in those urban centers. Is part of the reason that there's so much of that sprawl because uh, there, there are so many restrictions zoning wise that uh, it's very hard to create housing?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the biggest drivers in California is that it's just really hard to build new housing that people want to live in in these urban centers where people do want to live. The reason those rents are so high is because people want to live there, but they can't and they get priced out and pushed further into the um, outer edges of the city. Uh, and this is often driven not only by the zoning laws that I talk more directly. So there's like limits on how tall a building can be, how much, you know, it can be near the road, um, the minimum lot size requirements. And then also parking requirements are often involved for new apartment buildings, which only increases the cost for developers and further uses up more space and, you know, continues to sprawl out the urban landscape. Um, the other things that, uh, in California in particular faces is long permitting requirements so this makes the cost of development much higher because you spend so much longer as a developer sort of in this waiting phase waiting for each you know level of the government to get back to you on whether or not you can proceed with actually breaking ground on a new project and then on top of that california has something called the sequel laws which are the california environmental quality act uh, and it's actually born out of the federal NEPA laws which is our national environmental policy act so it sort of creates a mini NEPA a situation and allows for community input and uh, the submission of environmental impact statements for new projects that may theoretically harm the environment, um, which sort of it's sort of uh, ironically that in some ways these types of uh, requirements actually make the environmental impacts much worse because they continue to push environmental uh, housing projects further out into the outer reaches, like I mentioned increasing the likelihood for uh, wildfires at risks and also producing more carbon emissions
0: you know I, I hope this question doesn't take us too far off track but I'm, I I'm just wondering how do you know city planners how do how do zoning officials how do you balance the the um, the upside as well as the downside of having more people in less space like you know higher density housing in those urban centers because it seems like there's there's going to be a trade-off one way or the other there's convenience on the one hand less people having to drive to get where they're trying to go on the other hand that's a lot of people in one place that would it seems like that would come with some problems or challenges too
1: yeah i think in practice um our current system makes it really difficult to actually do uh, a cost benefit analysis for new projects, because what actually ends up happening is a lot of cronyism in the process. So when you have these types of laws, there's all now the process is not just about uh you know building new housing or developing something new it's about you know a developer trying to pay off a city council member so they can get what they want into the process which is a thing we know does happen part because these laws are sometimes so vague or so cumbersome that it's easier to just pay off someone um so i think f- at, the first step we need to do is to just be very clear about like what we care about, and how we're going to uh, create clear and obvious rules for uh, people to follow that are much simpler than we currently have. Focus more specifically on health and safety, like building code laws, rather than on these sort of uh, nebulous ideas about you know community design or uh, you know neighborhood character. You know, we don't want to build apartment here because this neighborhood character is built for single families at the home. So,
0: so what about single family um, zoning? I, I know that. You mentioned in your article, that's pretty much been the norm for a long time. Um, what has Governor Newsom done um, in, in terms of that and and by eliminating single family housing zoning? D- does that change the landscape?
1: So uh, as of 2021, Gavin Newsom, uh, in, in uh, conjunction with the legislature, has banned single family zoning. Uh, But this does not change the immediate landscape of California for a few reasons. The first is that they're going to end up and already are in litigation with a lot of these cities who want to maintain their zoning powers um, and are nervous about having those powers taken by the Newsom administration or the broader California state government. Um, And then the other one is that, you know, just because you lift those zoning laws does not necessarily change all these other rules that we have in place that continue to push people further out. It still doesn't answer the permitting requirements, the sequel laws that I mentioned before, parking mandates, all these things are still in place. So, uh, you know, there's some variation between localities, but if you actually wanna solve this, it's not just a single family zoning, it's an overhaul of the way we think about uh, land use in uh, California and across the United States.
0: We've got just under a minute left, but I'd like to ask you, who's most likely to resist? Who's most likely to support those needed changes?
1: So I definitely think the people most likely to support uh, these laws are the people who want to live in these places. People who have been pushed out in many ways because they've been priced out of, you know, really high opportunity cities like San Francisco. Um, and then I think the people most likely to oppose are going to be long term homeowners who view uh, this as almost an infringement on their property values uh, and want to sort of use the state to keep those property values arbitrarily high.
0: Okay, great. Great answer and in record time we're talking with eli gullett he is a young voices contributing fellow as well as the head of the american conservation coalition's raleigh durham branch where can people follow you on social media
1: you can find me at market urbanists on twitter or you can find acc's twitter profile at acc underscore
2: triangle
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Kier Nuthi back to the program. She is a regular contributor for Young Voices. And, uh, care for the people who are meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself.
3: Hi. Yeah. So, I'm Kier Nuthi. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Center for Data Innovation. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank based in D.C., Brussels, and London.
0: And I'm, I'm happy to hear that you are now permanently living in the U.K. That's got to feel good to be, to be settled there.
3: It's feeling quite nice. It is a bit more tumultuous than I was expecting, just given the cost of living crisis and the fact that I don't think I really felt it where I lived in the U.S.
0: Wow. Well, that's a topic hopefully we'll get a chance to explore it another time. I. I, I don't follow UK news as closely, of course, as, as someone who actually lives there, but tell me about their online safety bill. This is, is really intriguing to me, because I have a hunch that there may be some people on this side of the Atlantic who, who would like to, to do something similar. What's the, the basis for this online safety bill?
3: Yeah, it is Um, Well, it feels kind of like the American Section 230 content moderation fights. It is the UK's attempt to be a world leader in online safety and content moderation. So it's focusing on what can we create to enforce legal obligations on online services, i.e. social media, search engines, et cetera, um, to minimize the content that the government doesn't want online, which I say minimize the content that the government doesn't want online because that in and of itself can be quite problematic.
0: Oh, I I just saw a, a video on Twitter, I think it was just last week, of one of your fellow Young Voices contributors, Connor uh, Tomlinson, uh, having a bit of a discussion with, uh, with a woman somewhere in public, and there was a police officer standing by. Connor used the word insidious, and I think he was, I believe he was using it to describe uh, the woman's position on something, and he wasn't angry when he said it, but this police officer stepped up and threatened to arrest him. For, for, you know, using that kind of language. And it made me stop and think, you really can get in deep trouble if if you say something insulting or something uh, that, that's considered offensive or demeaning, um, depending on, on who's reading it, I understand you have a risk of, of finding yourself, uh, you know, running afoul of the authorities.
3: Yeah. And when it comes to free expression, that can be quite problematic because communities all across the world are just so diverse and when we as a society agree something's not correct that can work on a small scale but then if the government decides what conversations we're allowed to talk about online then our civil liberties our civil rights conversations about both of those come into question on is that going to be okay after online regulation and for social media that is kind of devastating because it is a user-created user-focused internet so the user should be the focus of online regulation more so than so prescriptions.
0: What, when they talk about legal but harmful language, who gets to decide? Who who makes that call? Because it sounds like that could that could easily be a subjective call.
3: <laughs> legal but harmful has been a very large topic with regards to the online safety bill. Um, It's kind of content that's not necessarily illegal, but presents a material risk of significant harm to an appreciable number of children or adults in the UK. A lot of those words I've just said are incredibly subjective, which when in practice with the bill makes it even worse. Um, The online safety bill gives a lot of discretion to the regulator Ofcom and the secretary of state for digital culture, media and sport, which is kind of like a senator or congressional representative in charge of defining this committee, um, they get to change the rules when they want. And it's gonna be really hard to consistently apply that subjective definition when the Secretary of State and Ofcom can choose to add or subtract or clarify things on the list. Um, And that could just make speech more political than it already is, and politicizing online speech regulation sounds like a red flag.
0: Oh, that, that, yeah, that, that sounds like a minefield in a cow pasture somewhere where you got to watch your yeah. step every everywhere you go. What are some of the topics, or what are some of the, the categories where people would have to really watch what they're talking about? In other words, where are people more likely to take offense under such a bill?
3: I've been focusing a lot on how nuance is everything. So it's content that feels like it would be okay, but that might just get over-moderated. So when we're talking about postpartum depression and like awareness around that, could that then get over-moderated because it's considered self-harm? Is the terror of war photo of that child um, that got taken down by Facebook in 2016, are we going to have more incidences of journalism photos getting taken down because the content that the online safety bill is targeting sounds like those categories. It's gonna be content that made today's current social movements succeed. Like I mentioned in a report I wrote about the bill, Arab Spring, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, but there are more pressing topics today that are using social media to succeed, like Iran and Ukraine, like these are moments of journalistic and democratic importance that the bill does not make a flexible and agile response to. And because of that, we're losing the nuance that makes person-to-person speech so hard to regulate in a bill that tries to do too much by focusing on illegal content, legal but harmful content, content harmful to children, and content harmful to adults. It's doing too much to actually take into account the nuance of human conversation.
0: In addition to some of the risks that uh, such a bill would pose to, to free speech, talk to me about privacy. Will it have impact on on uh, online users' privacy as well?
3: Yes. Um, this is the part I find really different from a lot of international content moderation proposals. It covers more than just social media and search engines. It's extending the reach into over-the-top messaging platforms, which are the WhatsApps and the iMessages and the signals and wires of the world. It's those apps we download onto our phones because we want to protect our privacy more or less or use a different service to get what we want. Signal and wire and WhatsApp use end-to-end encryption to make sure that if I'm talking to you, you and I are the only people who can read our messages, not even... The service maybe somebody behind us if they're staring directly at our phone right. which would be really creepy <laughs> in its own right um that just makes the platform feel safer for users by protecting their privacy in a way that an unencrypted service doesn't necessarily now these platforms are used by everybody i use it to talk to my husband but human rights activists lgbt youth abuse survivors dissidents especially relevant today, dissidents, are using it to stay safe from persecution and violence. So if the online safety bill covers these platforms, then all of those content moderation restrictions and conversations we were just talking about applies to content that services can't see. So then all of a sudden, these services are going to be incentivized to get rid of these privacy protections we've come to respect and want and use for sometimes normal situations, but sometimes much more extreme life or death ones.
2: Kara,
0: we're down to about one minute left in this segment, but what are some of the solutions that uh, that you put forth in your article?
3: I would love to see encrypted communications to gone from the online safety bill. If we can mix encrypted communications and something of the age assurance measures put in the online safety bill, I think it will do a lot to preserve the civil liberties of users. There's a couple options on how they could tackle legal but harmful content. They could just mix the entire section altogether, together, focus on illegal content, or, and this might sound slightly controversial, create a Section 230 style reform and Section 230 style law to preserve moderation and online safety in some form of a trade-off. Um, all of that's to say the bill needs multiple significant amendments and gutting to make sure that UK users and international users aren't going to find an internet that they don't recognize in a few years.
0: Alright. I love love the article, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Again, we are talking with Kier Nuthi. Keir, where can people contact you, or rather, find you on social media?
3: You can find me on social media at at Nuthi on Twitter, or you can find my work and all of my amazing colleagues' work at datainnovation.org.
0: Thank you so much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Joshua Crawford back to the program. He, of course, is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Joshua, since the last time we talked, your title has changed. I see that you are now the director of the Criminal Justice Initiative at the Georgia Center for Opportunity.
4: That is correct.
0: Well, congratulations. And uh, anything else that, uh, that you'd want our listeners to know about you, those meeting you for the first time?
4: So uh, I focus uh, most of my work on uh, urban violence and criminal justice, uh, more broadly construed. That's the work that I'll do for GCO. It's the work that I did before for those who are our regular listeners. But a large chunk of my work focuses on uh, reducing urban violence in America's large and medium-sized cities.
0: And you know. I, I don't want to sound like uh, you know, I'm being gloomy here, but I sure get the impression as I see the news headlines that, that crime is, is on the rise and, and apparently is becoming a much bigger issue for a lot of people across the country. Does that, does that align with reality?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Crime and and violent crime in particular is a top four issue for most voters and most polls heading into the midterms. Um, And it reflects a reality that we have basically been on a a six year up or even trajectory in terms of violence. Um, And in the last several years, especially that violence has not just encompassed things like homicides and non-fatal shootings and carjackings and things like that, but has uh, perpetuated down to these sort of smash and grab robberies that you See in some large coastal cities, uh, and sort of just general disorder that, that people are pretty fed
0: up with. So this is having an impact on uh, economic opportunities, and and uh, for for people in those those communities with very high crime rates. Talk to me about the negative impact it has on on their opportunities for for business, or even for that matter, where they can shop for groceries.
4: Right. Yeah. People tend to think of the poverty uh, crime relationship as directional from poverty to crime. Right. Uh, Poverty spurs crime, those kinds of things. And as it relates to violent crime, there's really not any research that suggests that that's the case. Um, the relationship is actually much more cyclical and to a, to a greater degree is even directional in the other direction. Uh, when you look at individuals of similar demographics, uh, similar racial and ethnic demographics that are in the uh, bottom quartile of, of income earners, one of those individuals that lives... In a, in a pretty desolate community, but with low rates of violence versus one who lives in a similar community, but with high rates of violence, the economic mobility of the person in the high rate of violence community is much, much lower. Um, in other words, the our poorest residents in poor communities that don't have high rates of violence are much more likely to be able to live out the American dream than those who live in areas with high rates of violence.
0: Yeah. And it's I mean, I I was looking at your article, you know, I I remember seeing these news headlines, Starbucks closing 16 locations in Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Walgreens. Actually, they're probably not the only ones in the Bay Area of California. But, you know, as as crime becomes a bigger problem, I can totally understand why these businesses would would hesitate to stay open. It, It puts their employees at risk. They're losing, you know, due to theft and so forth. What are some of the more likely solutions, you know, I mean, I I, we don't we don't want vigilante squads roaming the streets, but what can what can we do to to make a community safe in which to do business?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean. The public safety question here is a relatively straightforward one Um, crime, especially violent and serious crime concentrates among a very small number of individuals, Uh, within a very small number of micro locations. But those individuals in those locations tend to also concentrate in sort of macro level communities. And so that's why you hear people talk about sort of high crime communities. It's not that a large percentage of the population is committing crimes. It's that the small number of recidivist offenders concentrate in particular areas. And so what you have to do is concentrate resources on those individuals. That's law enforcement and corrections resources, but it's also social service resources, right? You can get a lot of Bang for your buck if you focus on the right people, as opposed to sort of perceived dragnet policies, uh, lock everybody up, or you know, occupation-style policing. Those kinds of things will have some public safety benefit, but will cause a lot of harms too. Uh, if, instead, you appropriately target the people that are driving this violence, uh, typically within the subcontext of street gangs or street groups, um, then you can get all of that public safety benefit and more without a lot of those other consequences.
0: I also wonder about the perception. because look, I, I know there's a lot of stuff that's reported in the news that we get that availability bias where, wow, that must really be happening everywhere. In reality, the crime may be going up, but it's it's not like everybody has has lost their moral compass and and it's every man for himself, is it?
4: No. Um, one of the the misnomers uh, about crime is that uh, basically that criminals are born, right? That uh, that you know there's a, a certain group of people that are going to go out and commit crimes, and there's really nothing you can do about it, or or that everybody is a criminal at heart, or those kinds of things. And the truth is is that virtually everybody has the ability to be a criminal, has the possibility to be a criminal, Uh, but human beings are rational and respond to internal and external stimuli, right? So for some people, it's their internal moral compass that would keep them from ever committing an act of violence. And for other people, it's various external stimuli. It's uh, reducing the uh, opportunities for crime. It's making apprehension for crime more likely. And so because people are rational and respond to those external stimuli, you can reduce crime by doing, doing the right things, but you can also increase crime by doing a lot of the wrong things. And We're living through a time period coming out of COVID-19 and, and through a variety of changes of policy at the city level, where folks have done some really silly things that we're now seeing the, the downside of.
0: So, in, in your opinion, what's the wisest thing, or the wisest approach, that uh, policymakers could do you know, in the near term to, to start to mitigate some of these challenges for for those particular high-crime areas?
4: Yeah. So the the first thing is to recognize the truism that I stated earlier, that this is a relatively small number of people um, and to focus on those people. And you can do that through law enforcement, through what's referred to as focused deterrence strategies. You can do that in sentencing practices, through enhancements for particular behaviors, particular ways in which crimes are committed. that, That way you go after your problem actors without expanding that net for a bunch of other people. Um, And then you can do sort of uh, strategic uh, changes to the physical environment. Um, There are tremendous crime reducing benefits to things like uh, shoring up or tearing down abandoned buildings, improving street lighting cleaning, cleaning and greening vacant lots. And obviously that's a very tall task if you try to do it for a whole city. But if you overlay maps of those physical disorders with maps of crime and focus on the high crime areas first, you can get a lot of benefit very quickly.
0: Now could that be likened to the to the broken windows theory that uh, I think New York City used so successfully about 30 some years ago?
4: Yeah, absolutely. The the truism that James Q. Wilson and George Kelling, when they first wrote Broken Windows for the Atlantic, uh, identify yeah. is that people respond to the environment around them and a physically disordered environment is going to... Uh, incentivize and encourage other misdeeds. Um, and this is borne out considerably in the research. And that just by altering that physical environment, without making a single arrest, without a single prosecution, just by altering that physical environment, you can drive down crime and serious and violent crime included.
0: So, where do you see this, uh, I'm not trying to, to call names of any you know cities, but where are the biggest problems right now, where, if you had to pick a, a locality in America that would be a great place to start, to model this to others, where would you choose?
4: Yeah, so there's sort of uh, two categories of cities uh, that are experiencing problems right now. What I refer to as the historically safe cities that are sort of in unprecedented times over the last six, seven years. Um, Those are cities like Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, places like that. Um, They are, are basically trying to get back to a place that they were just a decade ago. Um, And then you have the historically high crime cities that are experiencing this as well. Places like uh, St. Louis, Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, that that not only need to reverse their recent trends, but have a lot more work to do than that. There are some cities that have handled this really well. Uh, Gary, Indiana is a city that has historically struggled with violence, but has been able to contain it over the last couple of years. Miami, Florida has done an excellent job of not uh, seeing increases in violence in recent Recent years, so there are some bright spots, and, and there are some places that cities can learn from.
0: All right, Joshua, we're down to one minute left. I have to ask you this: um, as far as as um, the the people who are are likely to to support this, who's in favor? Who who would resist this kind of reform?
4: Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to ideology at the end of the day, right? If your ideology says that human beings are at their best in a state of nature when they are unencumbered by society and structures, and that the only way to make people good is to tear down those structures, um, then you're not going to be particularly persuaded by this. But anyone who I would say from sort of the moderate left to the moderate right, uh, who sees these institutions as important, who value public safety, and who understand that we can move the needle on this, uh, that is who should be supportive of this.
0: Okay, we're talking with Joshua Crawford. He's the director of the Criminal Justice Initiative at the Georgia Center for Opportunity, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Joshua, where can our listeners find you on social media?
4: So uh, all of my stuff moving forward will be on, on the Georgia Center for Opportunity's website and, and their social media. Uh, but if you're interested in engaging with me directly, Instagram is the best platform to do that. It's Crawford All
0: right, thank you so much. Great to visit with you. Thank you. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Roy Matthews back to the program. Roy, good to catch up with you. For people meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are.
5: Yeah, so like you said, my name's Roy. I am currently the press secretary for Bruce Poliquin for Congress. He is the Republican candidate running in Maine's second congressional district, which is the largest district east of the Mississippi River. Uh, And before that, I used to work at an energy think tank in Washington, D.C.
0: All right. Now, you uh, you were telling me before we jumped on the air that uh, you are in Maine and you're enjoying fall and I got to admit I'm a little bit jealous. I just I I've never been to New England or, you know, to the East Coast for for fall, but I hear it's it's just it's the best that there is. Having said that, that also means that the cold weather is coming and uh, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for I believe it's the Boston Herald and that is Maine's heating oil crisis is about to get worse. I did not realize That uh, I mean, I know cost of everything's going up, but tell me about this—the heating oil crisis that that Maine is facing.
5: Right. So Maine and Hawaii are two of the most oil-dependent states in the nation. Uh, Maine has the largest proportion of homes that are heated with heating oil in the entire country. Sixty percent, over sixty percent of Maine homes are heated with heating oil. That's compared to a national average of around four percent. Um, and of course with the ongoing energy crisis uh, refineries have decided to produce more gasoline and more diesel to um, <clears throat> excuse me to make up the supply gap that's why prices are so high um, also caused by federal uh, federal interference in the oil and gas um, process but in doing choosing to produce more um, diesel and gasoline they are choosing to not produce other distillates like heating oil that Maine families um, really do depend on
0: Wow. I mean, I've, I've been sitting here feeling sorry for Europe. And part of this is because I have a daughter who, live in, who lives in Germany. But um, I know the cost of, of keeping your home warm this winter is, is really going to be daunting for people in Europe. I didn't think that other than, you know, the rising cost of energy here, I didn't think we would see, you know, anything that could approximate a crisis. But what you're describing sounds like it, it could get uh, get pretty ugly.
5: Yeah, and Maine has a has a unique demographic. We're one of the oldest states in the nation, I believe the third or second oldest state in the nation. So we have a lot of retirees and a lot of folks on Social Security and fixed incomes. And when you're retired and you're living in these rural communities like Madison, Maine, which is up up near um Skowhegan where, you know, there's more moose than people, right? <laughs> so when you're living in these communities and you're 60, 70, 80, you need these heating trucks to actually fill up your um, your tank for the winter in order to keep yourself warm when heating oil is topped i believe five dollars and 86 cents per gallon that was in may of 2022 it's come down to around four dollars and 40 to 50 cents a gallon but a lot of these folks that are living on you know three thousand dollar social security checks or retirement plans from the federal government that's a massive amount of money that they're going to take out of their own pockets to heat their home and if you're a senior you've got to drive yourself to the doctor, you've got to pick up groceries, you got to go see your grandkids. So a lot of these folks are really really having a hard time right now.
0: So let's let's talk about what are some of the proffered solutions assuming that there there are, you know, uh, people in leadership positions that are looking at this is is anybody stepping up and saying, "Okay, here's what we have to do."
5: So the main delegation uh, mm-hmm. filed for Heap, which is a federal government program to get heating oil assi- assistance however they decided to do this in late july uh, when the price of heating oil was already at near six dollars a gallon for at least the preceding four four or five months um and with this inflation that we've uh, we've talked about they applied for about maybe four uh f- heating oil assistance for about forty thousand main homes well if the heating oil is Let's say four dollars and fifty cents a gallon. That's not going to heat forty thousand homes. That's going to heat maybe twenty-five thousand or thirty thousand. And the wow. amount of um, funds that they actually appropriated for this heating oil assistance is only enough to fill up uh, main heating uh, the average main heating oil tank about halfway for all of main homes. So it's really too little, too late. It's a drop in the bucket at this point, and you know it's just another example of people. Seeing that the oil and gas industry is bad, therefore we must regulate it out of existence. But there are states like Maine, and I, I mentioned Hawaii before, that literally truck in all their fuel needs by truck or by rail that are off, that's also run on these fuels. So when you throttle the industry, this is what folks have to deal with. And like I said, we have a lot of seniors, and it's it's really getting scary. Um, I was up in Madison, Maine, the same town I mentioned before, and I was at a gas station. We talked to this woman who was uh, filling up her kerosene um, for her mobile home, since a lot of the mobile homes up here uh, are heated with kerosene. Kerosene is almost six dollars a gallon. So that's even worse. So it's the poorest manners that are going to be hit hardest by this crisis.
0: That's uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned kerosene because I I have a few friends who who like to uh, live as close to off the grid as they possibly can, and and the complaint that they've had, and this is this is out west, but they've said kerosene is almost impossible to find right now. I and I don't know the reasons behind it, but six bucks a gallon Eesh. that must mean supply is is getting you know scarce or demand is getting
5: higher. No, the demand for kerosene is off the charts here. Um, you mentioned people that live off the grid. There are these um, places in Maine called plantations, and we also have unorganized territories. I believe we're one of only seven states that still have those. Um, these areas, there is effectively no local government, so it is the, you know, I joke, but it's a libertarian's par- paradise. You build your log <laughs> cabin, and you have nobody else around, right? But these people that have, you know, lived this way for generations, that have cut their own wood, that have heated their own homes, they still depend on kerosene and all these and all these different um, distillates to heat their homes. And um, we've got manners that are gathering firewood like it's like we're living in the 1800s because they just can't afford to pay for kerosene or heating oil or any of these other distillates to hit their heat their homes. So, you know, I understand these folks that want to live off the grid. Believe me, I'm kind of jealous. Um, But, you know, we shouldn't have to they shouldn't get the short end of the stick just because we're overly concerned about climate change. And that is a problem. But we need to have an energy portfolio that welcomes all sorts of energy. I, I love solar just as much as I love gasoline. Just just let me choose. If we let mainers choose, then everybody's happy. as long as we have massive supplies of each each type of energy, it'll all be cheap and we'll be fine.
0: So let's talk about energy policies. What needs to change to, to allow us to meet those needs you know uh, without uh, you know inadvertently putting ourselves back into the 19th century?
5: well to start uh, if we could turn back the clock and prevent uh, the biden administration from leaving hundreds of oil and gas leases in limbo um, that created this sort of lack of supply um, and we're just now playing catch up with it uh, i believe just this past week opec um, which is the organization of petroleum exporting countries uh, decided to give the united states the, the equivalent of the finger and um, say that they're not going to increase production we have more than enough energy at home it's just the federal government and the state governments that impose these regulations that make it so make it prohibitively expensive to drill for any of this energy um we need we need more pipelines we need to start producing more energy at home um we produce energy much more clean, much more. Excuse me, <clears throat> cleaner than uh, China and Saudi Arabia because we have such stringent environmental standards. Those environmental standards are a good thing, um, and companies have worked their tails off to meet those standards. But the current administration just doesn't want to see oil and gas be a part of the energy portfolio. And um, the the main state government has put a lot of money into the, um, solar panels, solar panel farms up here, which is a good idea, except maine is freezing cold and cloudy and we have winter storms for a large percent a large part of the year and um just one last thing we had there's been proposals for offshore wind turbines and if you think about maine you think a lobster and um those proposals have very much upset a lot of the lobstermen who are going to see their livelihoods impacted too
0: wow so what would it take? And I'm, I'm, no, I'm asking you to kind of, you know, read the tea leaves for me, if you would, Roy. Um, I'm just wondering what it would take to shift both the federal administrations as well as some of the state administrations to where they they might back down a little bit on some of these green policies that that are are you know shortchanging us on energy.
5: I think it's just going to take, and it's going to be hard for me to say this. It's going to, you know, take going through it. Um, Europe's going through it right now with with uh, Germany. I, I believe, rationing energy. Um, and honest, and folks are scared up here. And honestly, you, you get what you vote for. Um, I'm not at all attacking people who decided to vote for the current administration or anything like that. But this is an example of what happens when we allow people that are just hostile to American energy to gain power. Um, and I think really the Only solution here is to, you know, we got to have a change in Congress, a change in the administration, and we've got to pump the brakes on all this, um, on all these green policies. Um, We can have solar farms, we can have wind turbines, that's great, but we need to have a balance. Um, And let me just say, um, these are just my opinions, these do not reflect uh, my candidate or the uh, campaign that I'm working for, this is all coming from me.
0: Okay, we are talking with Roy Matthews. He is a Young Voices contributor, and and uh, congratulations on your work working on the campaign. Um, we'll have a link to your article in the show notes. But uh, tell people where they can find you on social media.
5: Sure, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at your boy Roy ninety eight. There's an underscore in between YaBoy boy and Roy. Um, there's a lot of campaign stuff right now, so apologies in advance um and you can find me on uh just the young voices website youngvoices.org talent and just search for my name uh in that great roster of writers